Good afternoon. I'm Professor Katherine Pearson, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science. Before we begin, I want to invite you to participate in today's event. For those of you joining us in person, we will come through with question cards. For those joining us on Zoom, as you see here on the slide, there is a Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Please use this to submit your questions throughout the program, and we will get to as many as possible. We also have live captioning available. To turn on, click on the Close Caption button in the Zoom toolbar at the bottom of your screen. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's program, Minnesota State Elections. Our guest today is Brianna Birchbach. Brianna Birchbach has spent the last 12 years covering Minnesota politics for various publications, including NPR, News, and MinPost. She is currently uh, the politics and government reporter for the Star Tribune. She started her journalism career in college at the University of Minnesota's campus newspaper, the Minnesota Daily, where she covered City Hall. Birchbach has also worked at the Pioneer Press, the Associated Press, and the Minneapolis St. Paul Business Journal. I want to start today with a few questions of my own uh, and then move to questions that people have already submitted and hopefully that you will be submitting as well. As we've been discussing earlier, midterm elections heavily favor the party that does not hold the White House. This year is no exception, particularly as President Biden's approval ratings hover in the low 40s. So midterm elections are a referendum on the president, and that has become an increasing trend. We see that, of course, uh, with U.S. House elections, to some extent U.S. Senate elections, but increasingly state legislative elections as well, even though the president is not on the ballot. It is also important to remember that in midterm elections, vote turnout is lower, often around 20 points, although in 2018, Minnesota once again bested the nation with a midterm turnout of around 50%. Some political scientists, this may surprise our journalist expert here, <laughs> some political scientists actually don't even see campaigns mattering that much once you take into account all of the other contextual factors, such as midterm election effects, the president's popularity or lack thereof, economic conditions, uh, and the money that the two parties raise, which generally tends to even out. But in state contests, I think it's a little bit different. And so we're really going to dive in today into campaign effects, how each, uh, how the candidates are campaigning in close races, how the parties are doing, uh, and, and all of those many factors. So I want to start this discussion by asking Brianna how she sees the national context, a context that really favors Republicans in this midterm year, playing out in the state of Minnesota, in statewide races and in state legislative races. Yeah, I mean, you can't ignore it, right? I mean, as you said, it, it that's a fascinating theory, by the way, that maybe it, nothing matters, <laughs> which, you know, if you told that to all those sort of frazzled campaign staffers I'm talking to every day, they'd be like, what, nothing matters? All this stuff that I'm doing all the time. But um, you can't ignore it. You can't ignore it in state races um, as well. So much, um, you know, increasingly over the last 12 years, you really see national politics um, play in state elections. But as we also know, Minnesota is quirky, Minnesota's weird, we have high voter turnout, mm -hmm. we have, um, we had, you know, have a long history of third parties having some power in the state. I mean, we have people who still split their tickets, which basically means they might vote 
um, Republican or Democratic on the top of the ticket, but then down below, they might switch parties, which isn't really a thing that happens as much in other states. So, um, you know, in Minnesota, you, the, the national climate will certainly, is certainly dictating the issues, um, I think, that we're hearing. And I know we've talked about this. This is a campaign where it's all about the issues, and there are so many issues at play, right? I mean, the top being um, the economy and rising crime, um, which are the same issues you're hearing about on the national level and you're hearing national Republicans talk about, um, but then also, of course, in June after uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, that is now for the first time in 50 years playing in an election in a way I've never seen it before. Um, but you also have people concerned about, you know, other issues, just sort of, you know, the, the sort of existential crisis around democracy, the, the attack on January um, 6th at the Capitol and, and the hearings around that certainly are in a lot of voters' minds as well. So, um, you know, you, you, there is no Trump and there is no Biden on the ballot like there was two years ago, but people are also still talking about those national figures, right? People are looking at state and local Democrats and maybe they're thinking about Biden, not necessarily them. And same with Republicans who might knock on your door. Uh, they might be um, thinking more about Trump um, than they're thinking about necessarily the local legislative candidate. But you can't ignore how the issues and the messaging and the intensity around Washington, D.C. trickles down into every single race on the ballot. Yeah, and that's and the point about the issues in this election, really focusing on policy issues in a way that a lot of elections just don't, mm -hmm. um, is really interesting. But you know, one of the things that political scientists have found through through research is that people don't come to these issues with a blank slate. Sure. They come with their partisan identity and view them through a partisan lens, whether or not that. Uh, hinges on who to blame for the economy uh, or even their position on the economy and crime and what should be done about it or even abortion. And so people tend to have uh, motivated reasoning that comes from their partisan identity. Mm -hmm. And that really tracks in some ways with the ways in which uh, partisans are talking about these issues yes. differently. But then that's also reflected in poll dynamics where you see that voters sort of indicate that different parties would do a different better a better job with the issues. So sure. for example, um, in a nationwide representative survey that the Washington Post did, it showed that Republicans were viewed as the party that does a better job on crime. Mm. So it's not surprising that Republicans are talking more about crime. Yeah. And uh, that same nationwide poll showed that Democrats uh, are more trusted on the issue of uh, abortion. Mm -hmm. And so not surprising that Democrats are more likely to talk about that. And do you think that because it's a midterm election and turnout is lower, there's a little bit of a different dynamic here in terms of motivating the base versus turning out uh, persuading voters? Definitely. I mean, I think that it's funny when I talk to candidates on either side, I say, what issues are you hearing about? And they're saying, well, the first thing Democrats will say, the first thing I'm hearing is abortion. Mm -hmm. um, Republicans will say the first thing I'm hearing about is crime in the economy. But it's a midterm. So they're going to people likely to vote on their side. So they're likely to hear from the issues that concern their base more right away at the doors. Um, so it's been very hard to tell what is actually the top, right. <laughs> what are actually the top issues. Um, but you know, they're saying these are the ones that are going to also turn their base out. So um, it's fascinating. Abortion is a great kind of to your question. Um, I have really never ever heard Democrats talk about abortion in the way they are talking about it this cycle. It's in every ad, it's in um, on every mailer, it's they're attacking Republicans um, in every race, even if there's not a great reason to do so, or at least a great stated position to do so on abortion. And I would say two years ago, four years ago, the last dozen years I've been covering this, abortion is the issue that you kind of just 
hope does no one brings up because Democrats didn't know necessarily how motivated people were or if they were at all on the issue because uh, Roe was in place, there was protections and in the constitution and they didn't feel like they really needed to kind of test the waters on how people felt about it but now they see it as kind of the one big issue they can get to motivate their base this year um, so they're not necessarily trying to persuade people that they're having the right position on abortion they're saying if you care about this issue we're 100 percent on the side on on your on the side of um, protecting access and you need to get out and vote for us because of that so um, i think that's a that's a fascinating issue in which democrats are sort of pushing aside all the sort of past kind of careful careful treading they've done on the issue of abortion and they're going fully into um, we'll protect your rights um, and you need to vote for us based on that issue. Right, and what we're seeing in Minnesota is of course replicated at the national level. Yes, definitely. Um, one of the interesting dynamics about Minnesota is this is a very competitive election year in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. um, 201 legislative seats on the ballot, of course, uh, the statewide offices, uh, no Senate seats, but eight, eight US House seats. Mm -hmm. And it's very competitive, but nonetheless, the vast majority of the seats I'm talking about actually aren't competitive at all. Um, the partisanship of most uh, state legislative seats uh, leans heavily toward one party or the other, and then really six or seven out of the eight uh, congressional seats uh, lean pretty heavily one way or the other, other, the big exception being Minnesota's second district, but statewide, um, and then in those key legislative seats that will determine party control, it is extremely competitive. And so can you talk a little bit about the competitive state legislative races and the implications for party control of the state legislature? Yeah, I think this is the battle that gets maybe not enough attention from people because it's a hard to get your head around. Mm -hmm. There are 201 seats, they're all across the state. And as you mentioned, most of them are not nail biters at all. You, you kind of know if you've managed to recruit a, a fairly reasonable candidate um, of, of one party or the other, they're going to win that seat. Um, but there are about two dozen, and one of the things that we're still kind of uh, until recently, we're sorting out which which seats are competitive under the new redistricting maps that we had um, released in February. Um, but what we're seeing is a lot of the same trends we have over the last few years, um, just kind of replicating themselves. This cycle, you have about I would say fewer than two dozen races in the entire state that are being closely watched and targeted by both sides. There are some greater Minnesota battlegrounds. A fascinating one is in northeastern Minnesota, where we've seen over the last decade um, what, what was once a Democratic stronghold. Um, you know, Jim Oberstar served in Congress there for 40 years, almost 40 years. Democrats would win legislative races by 80% or 70% or more sometimes in their um, re-election battles. Now suddenly, there are only three Democrats le left on the um, legislative battle on the House side representing those seats, and they are being highly tar targeted by Republicans because in their districts, their new districts, Trump won by somewhere between four and 10 points, right? Um, so Republicans are really bullish about their chances to completely sweep and, and end the Democrats' time on the Iron Range in this election cycle. Democrats are saying, no, uh, we're gonna defend those seats, and. Um, you know, these legislators have experience. Uh, so it, those are really kind of an interesting sub battleground um, mm -hmm. for the battle to control the legislature. Um, and, and Republicans are arguing it could be decided in greater Minnesota. There's also a few um, battlegrounds around St. Cloud, which are very interesting. That's always a very swingy area. Um, because the margins are so tight, we have um, just Republicans in the House in Minnesota need to win just four seats to flip. And in the Senate, they have exactly the 34 seats they need for a majority. Um, but I will say most of the competitive seats are around the suburbs, um, which is a pretty typical 
thing we've seen over the last few years. It's interesting sort of where they've landed that's dependent on retirements. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a couple of seats where two incumbent Republican and Democratic legislators were put in the same district. So um, kind of one of the, the ones I profiled in a story I wrote over the weekend is in uh, the Coon Rapids Anoka area, where a new seat put a two-term Democrat and a two-term Republican in the exact same district. It's nearly evenly split between Trump and Biden two years ago, although it slightly swung slightly for Biden. Um, and both both parties and both candidates are out, you know, storming the district. And, and just seats like that, I think, will decide who controls. You know, if you see on election night a few Senate and, and House seats around kind of the northern mm -hmm. suburbs start to go one way or the other, it you know, will bode well for that side. Um, but it's it's very fascinating. The suburbs always kind of end up being the, the ultimate battleground in Minnesota because they create sort of a purple ring around the Twin Cities. Um, whereas the Twin Cities are blue, the rest of the state is increasingly deep red. This is this purple area that is also coincidentally where a lot of a lot of people live. Um, one interesting dynamic though, is that um, redistricting did put more seats because of demographic shifts in that suburban core. Democrats say suburban voters care about abortion more than you realize, especially suburban women. Um, but Republicans say they think that they're going to win some of these key suburban races based off of pocketbook issues, right? Based right. off of people concerned about. Abortion. Well, and those were some of the seats in 2018 that flipped the DFL um, yes. in an election year that favored Democrats. Mm -hmm. And so now we have an election year that favors Republicans. Mm -hmm. And so they're back in play. Yeah. And what's fascinating is usually in a mid, usually in a midterm election, the about 18 to 17 seats swing. That's a lot of seats. Um, that's how much the Democrats picked up in 2018, largely in the suburbs. Um, I don't know if we're going to see quite a big swing um, or quite as many seats that we might see some sweet seats change hands, but I think the margin that decides it is not going to be so large. Um, I think in talking to all the sides, I say, you know, what's your dream margin of victory here? And everyone said, you know, numbers that were pretty tight. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, that's it with right with this trend of fewer competitive seats. But Minnesota, it's sort of worth uh, reminding people that I think it is more competitive because we don't have partisan gerrymandering yes. that favors one side or the other. Mm -hmm. A majority of states either have solidly Republican uh, Republican electeds draw their seats yes. or Democratic electeds. And so those seats tend to be tend to be more partisan mm -hmm. favoring the, the party that has unified party control. Yes. And that's not what happened here in Minnesota. Yeah, no, the courts redraw our maps or have for the last 40, 50 years, mm -hmm. <laughs> because we've always had divided government when redistricting happens, which is right after the census. Um, and it's very fascinating. You know, I, I was pretty interested in, to see what the courts would do. Um, we got very lucky in Minnesota. We didn't lose an entire congressional district really by by less than 100 votes right. or uh, people. people. Um, I'm thinking of everything in terms of votes right now. Um, but really, I mean, I think if we had, you know, depending on how you looked at it, a few hundred people um, less in Minnesota versus New York, we would have lost our congressional seat to, to New York, but New York lost the seat. So it wasn't as, as intense of a job um, on the legislative side and the courts really did take a least change approach. So they really kind of tweaked the lines as they needed around the edges. Um, and that's why we're seeing a lot of the same dynamics. I mean, we could expect in Minnesota flipping control of our legislature and um, you know, for the next 10 years, like right. we've seen for the last 10. 
Right. And so in those competitive in that competitive subset mm -hmm. uh, of legislative districts, state house and Senate seats that will, will that will determine party control, mm -hmm. what type of campaign activities are you seeing? We're not seeing TV ads in the mm -hmm. state legislative district but districts, but what's going on in those districts? You're seeing some, but not as many. This is not really legislative districts don't aren't won and lost based off of TV ads. There's just not it's not as they're a incredibly expensive and b um, you know it's harder to kind of target the market um, in, in by legislative district. But after 2020, Democrats didn't door knock at all two years ago because of the pandemic. Republicans still did, although I would say they were dialed back. I mean, both sides are out knocking on doors. I mean, if you live in a competitive legislative district, this cycle you've had a candidate themselves, a candidate staffer, or someone um, on their team drop off a piece of campaign literature. I mean, really these glossy, these large glossy mailers <laughs> are kind of what legislative, the, the sort of bread and butter of legislative campaigns, you know? Um, they're called, um, yeah, we call them lit pieces, but some people call them hit pieces, depending on what <laughs> is on the mailer. Uh, but that is really, these kind of personal um, connections at the doors and, and these, these flyers mm -hmm. you hand out really can make the difference in legislative races. I know, um, you know, your research shows that on the national level, maybe some of these activities aren't as effective anymore, but I would say, you know, and you also said Minnesota's different. Well, I think legislative races mm -hmm. in particular are very different because they're so close to your local community, right? right. It can really, an appeal from someone in person, um, a one-on-one -on -one conversation that you have with a candidate or someone on their staff can really kind of make the difference in races where it, it's not unusual in Minnesota to have a race where it's decided by a few hundred votes. Um, I had I have to check this, but um, Kurt Doubt, the House Republican minority leader who could be speaker mm -hmm. if he if they win control, said that the 2018 or the 2020 election was just they almost took back control, but it was decided by fewer than 680 votes spread out across the state. They needed 680 more votes toward Republican candidates in different wow. districts, and they would have taken control. Yes. Um, and that's worth noting that has bearing on the legislative battle as well, right? I said 2018, Democrats picked up 18 seats, but Republicans made a lot of ground in 2020. So they just have fewer races to go that cycle. Right, and so this all speaks to Minnesota as being a pretty narrowly divided state yes. when it comes to party control, um, sort of our presidential uh, voting record aside. Um, yeah. But what does this tell us about the context for the statewide elections, the mm -hmm. battle for, mm -hmm. for governor, uh, for attorney general, for secretary of state, yeah. the auditor's race? Well, I mean, it's, a, it's those things that you said were true in January and February, right? That, um, you know, record high inflation, high gas prices, rising crime, um, and just the classic midterm effects mm -hmm. of um, it being a democratic administration in power in Washington and Biden being unpopular and still um, underwater in his approval rating in Minnesota, those are affecting the races for governor, led, um, attorney general, secretary of state, um, and state auditor. You know, it, it is interesting as we've seen now a few months of polls, um, how there's kind of some buckets that are happening. Mm -hmm. um, you're noticing there are two Republican candidates running statewide, um, Ryan Wilson, a Republican for state auditor, and Jim Schultz, a Republican for um, attorney general. They're kind of new faces. Uh, they don't have much of a, of a track record in state politics. 
Um, and they're largely running, you know, you see them often together at campaign events, um, and they're the two who are the closest in the polls. Um, and it's sort of this idea that if you kind of put uh, a generic Republican into this environment against a Democrat with a long record, or at least a record of the last four years, um, you know, what might happen? Um, and I think the auditor's race is actually one to look at in particular, it's neck and neck in almost every poll, they're tied. And um, a lot of people don't know what that office does. Um, so I really think about that one as, as sort of a good test of this environment. Um, and in the last party poll, preference, exactly. Yeah. In the yeah. last poll, you saw um, Ryan Wilson, the Republican, exactly tied with the Democratic state auditor, Julie Blaha. So, um, but then you look at some of the other uh, races, Walls has generally led Jensen in the polls. Um, we've seen some of those tighten. Um, I always say with polls, they're just, a, I mean, and this is true of polls, they're just a snapshot in time. Uh, we had polls in, um, you know, Min posted a poll in June in KSTP that showed um, Walls and Jensen, uh, at least June, May, I think, were the two were very closely um, together. Walls had like a slight, slight lead. And then you saw kind of in the summer after Dobbs, Walls' lead widening and mm -hmm. to, to the point where he had an 18 point lead in one of the KSTP polls, right. um, which, you know, was an outlier for sure in the, in the results that we've seen. And then as time has gone on, we've seen that number go down a little bit, um, or at least tighten a little bit for Walls. Um, but generally, Walls has led, and Secretary of State Steve Simon has, um, a Democrat, has tended to lead his Republican opponent in polls. So, you know, the candidates, um, the differences in the candidates do matter in these races, but it's interesting kind of with the AG and, um, in particular, the state auditor race to see how closely divided this environment is in Minnesota. Yeah, sort of along those lines about the importance of campaigns and candidates, what do you think that, um, both gubernatorial candidates have done wrong in this campaign? What have their <laughs> biggest weaknesses been? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, what's interesting about the Walls campaign is he he is out there. He's out there doing campaign events, um, but the press often doesn't know when they are. They're not, they're accessible, but they're not necessarily advertising um, where he's at all the time. And as we all know, because the Republicans have made this a huge issue, he has declined a number of mm -hmm. debates, right? Mm -hmm. He hasn't been um, in, in the debate circuit as much as he has been in the past. Um, and I guess it remains to be seen if that's a mistake or not, but it's been interesting how not low profile, but sort of controlled his campaign has been this cycle. Um, less moments for, <laughs> I suppose, um, uh, mishaps, saying the wrong thing, something that could easily be thrown up on an ad or could, you know, because he's the governor, start a, you know, week long news cycle of he bad headlines for them. Right. Um, but it also, you know, he's someone who is, he's very folksy. Um, he has, you know, he's a teacher, a former football coach. He has sort of a personable style that has helped him survive tough political battles in the past. And I don't think we're seeing as much of that side of him in a cycle where his, his sort of public appearances are much more controlled. Um, so, I mean, I think it remains to be seen whether or not that helps or hurts him, but I, I, I found it interesting and I, and I don't know if it's going to ultimately be um, potentially a knock. I think right. the, well, uh, it's given Republicans a campaign issue. You know, there, there was an empty place uh, yes. in the debate, the KSTP debate last just night. last night. Right. Yeah, there was um, Jensen got 30 minutes of free airtime mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. for, for people who are viewing KSTP. So um, we'll have to see, you know, also, I mean, I don't think we also don't know yet um, how the abortion issue is going to play, right? Democrats have gone all in. We, you know, they obviously think and they have 
you know, research that tells them that this is going to motivate their base, but we don't know. We don't know yet if, you know, really focusing on that as a line of attack, how that's going to play out. Um, you know, Jensen is someone who um, has been much, you know, much more accessible and available. I will say we don't always know where he is campaigning either. Um, but, you know, he is someone who is as, as well likely to get in trouble by maybe sort of spitballing an idea to a reporter or, or having an answer to a question that turns into, or saying something kind of candidly in, in an event or conversation that then turns into negative headlines. So that has been something that has been a struggle. I, I, you know, there were a few weeks where comments he made comparing um, COVID restrictions to sort of the rise of Nazi Germany. That was about a, a week at least long, um, you know, series of bad headlines. You know, he had said um, earlier in the campaign that he would work to ban abortion if he was governor, and then he changed that position. So that is that has been one of the number one attacks. And a, a series of interviews he did before he got the endorsement have been used in, I would say, millions of dollars worth of advertisements, clips from from those, um, both from the Walls campaign on education and from democratic groups on abortion. Um, and, you know, he's, it's, it's a struggle for him to define himself when um, in this moment, when all of these ads are being using these past um, interviews and, you know, instead of sort of really kind of trying to keep the message focused, he's had a few mishaps in the campaign where he's talked about other issues or comments he's made offhand have kind of stolen the news cycle away from you. And when you're when you're definitely down um, in the polls and you're the underdog in the race, you really need to sort of funnel all of the um, attention you get toward your message that you want people to take away from the campaign. How does co how do their extreme differences on COVID-19 and vaccinations and how COVID uh, restrictions were handled mm -hmm. contribute to this campaign or is that sort of in the rearview mirror? Yeah, I think it's in the rearview mirror for a lot of voters, um, fascinatingly, right? Because this is what really brought Jensen to the forefront in the Republican field was his activism and his, um, you know, his appearances and his really, his, he rose to pro, uh, a very prominent role in the party through going to, you know, um, anti-masking rallies and things like that. Um, but now <laughs> it's it's very quiet. I would say in the first debate at Farm Fest, which was months and months ago now, it was, um, it was kind of all about COVID, um, or at least it always came back to COVID and Walz's management of it. But in the intervening weeks, it's been quiet. And, and even in our poll, we did a poll in partnership with NPR News and mm -hmm. CARE 11, where we asked people in the race for governor, what are your top issues? And people ranked crime, I'm sorry, the economy, crime, and abortion as their top three. Schools were, were quite a bit lower down as the fourth important issue, and COVID was just fairly registered in people's minds. I think people want to move on. That doesn't mean there isn't sort of like a people are sort of internally reeling still from the last two years. They're they're moving on, but that doesn't mean that the effects of it aren't somewhere in their mind and sort of in voting, you know, informing how they're going to vote in some way. You know, for Jensen, if people are angry about Walls's mandates, maybe they've already decided they're not going to vote for him again. Um, you know, for Walls, if someone has heard that Jensen isn't vaccinated, maybe they've already decided I can't support that person. Um, but it hasn't been on the top of voters' minds, I would say, in recent weeks. Yeah. Uh, so as you mentioned, uh, Jensen was endorsed at the mm -hmm. Republican convention, and that sort of generated a lot of press and a lot of enthusiasm among the base. But sort of looking at the endorsement process 
uh, more holistically, do you think that that causes some problems in general for candidates going into a general election and then for Jensen specifically? I'm also thinking back to how Waltz actually in his first run for governor was not the endorsed candidate that yes. then won in a primary. Yeah, I mean, it's the Republicans and the Democrats do this pretty differently. Democrats often endorse someone and then there's a competitive primary. It happened four years ago. It happened in Dayton's first mm -hmm. run as well. Um, and and the, the endorsement is not so binding on the Democratic side as it is on the Republican side. On the Republican side, you have to campaign heavily for that endorsement um, because it really has proven to be the, 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 the king or queen maker in um, the primary. Republican voters um, tend to vote for the endorsed candidate. Um, and so you do see problems with that on the Republican side. I mean, as I mentioned before, Jensen in the lead up to running for um, the endorsement, you know, held all these had all these interviews where he said things on abortion, things on education that are now being used in all of these ads against him, right? And I think that the the rap on the endorsement is that you're running um, to win the support of a much more conservative subset of the broader population, and that you're going to say things in doing that, and you're going to do things um, in that kind of campaign that could hurt you in a general election, and that you really need to find a way to pivot in the general election to appeal to a broader audience. I mean, it, you know, I would say Jensen has definitely tried to focus on crime and um, focus on the economy and focus on uh, education as some of his top issues since the endorsing convention. Um, and it, you know, in some ways has been successful at that um, in, his, in his events, but he's, he's not able to undo the comments that he made before he was endorsed that are now being run in all of these television ads. Um, I want to pivot now to third party candidates Ooh, in this particular cycle. It doesn't seem as though any are sort of running to win. They're right. not a, in a Jesse Ventura uh, position here, but in very close elections, whether in some of these competitive legislative races or statewide third party votes could make the difference in mm -hmm. determining one of the two major party winners. What are you saying? Yeah, that's a fascinating issue because I think um, just for context in 2020, um, you know, Republicans and Democrats disagree about this being the deciding factor, but there were a number of, um, in particular, you have two major marijuana parties in Minnesota. Um, so they, we had in, in among those two parties, a handful of candidates run in competitive and were recruited according to Democrats by Republicans to run in competitive um, legislative districts. And in some cases did take quite a few votes away from mm -hmm you know, one candidate or the other, Democrats will argue they're taking those votes from us because we support marijuana and those um, recreation, legalizing recreational marijuana. So if this person hadn't been on the ballot, those votes would have come to us as the party that's out front. I mean, I don't think it's a perfect, um, <laughs> it's not a perfect uh, argument, but, um, you know, generally it's Democrats who worry about these third party candidates more than Republicans because of these two major marijuana um, parties. But, you know, what is interesting about this year is, as you mentioned, none of them seem to be running campaigns to win. None of them are really high profile names. Um, but also the question about a midterm, not a presidential year, is with turnout so much lower than it is and was two years ago, are the people who are turning out actually just base voters for Republicans or Democrats? Are you going to get that sort of big group or decently sized group of people who are showing up to vote in the presidential race and then say, why not to a marijuana candidate lower down on the ballot? I think that um, the other question is when everyone is so in their camps um, and, and politics is so extreme, 
you know, do these third parties lose some potency? Um, I think an interesting example is there was a candidate, Corey Heppela, who was a WCCO radio um, host who tried to run as a third party candidate under um, a party Andrew Yang had started, the mm-hmm. forward party, um, and he was unable to even get 2000 signatures in order to get on the ballot because it's not a major party. So if that, you know, I don't know how much we can read into that one example, um, but he got in and Andrew Yang started this party thinking that in polarized times, there was an avenue and, and a lot of appetite for something different. And that just didn't necessarily prove to be the case. Right, which is so interesting. So political scientists look at negative partisanship. And in uh, some elections, negative partisanship, where people are voting against the other party Mm -hmm. as opposed to for their own party, Mm -hmm. is even higher than this sort of positive attachment to their own. Um, So it'll be interesting to see if any third party candidates um, make any inroads in this in this in this election. I do notice DFLers talking about marijuana more, uh, perhaps to try to Try to negate that. I will note in the auditor's race, there are two marijuana candidates. So I think that that is um, definitely causing Democrats some, and, and in the governor's race, I would I believe there are, um, there's a handful. There's a, two marijuana candidates, um, an independence party candidate, um, and a socialist worker party candidate. So there's a lot of people who could pull votes. Um, and in a close election, that does matter, even if it's not as big of a margin as maybe in past years, it still could it still makes a difference. Yeah. Um, and of course, then we're seeing the, the implications in the debate. Yeah. Um, so with redistricting, mm-hmm. it seemed that a lot of women uh, were either put in the same district as one of their same party colleagues, um, retired for some reason related to redistricting. Did you, did you see gender effects with redistricting? Um, mm-hmm. And what do you anticipate for uh, women in the next legislature? So currently, mm-hmm. 36% uh, of the Minnesota legislature is comprised of women, mm-hmm. 50 Demo- 52 Democrats and 20 Republicans. What do you think will happen after this cycle? That's a great question. This was the largest class of women in state history, um, you know, just narrowly than in, the, in past years, but still notably large. Um, and we had women in prominent leadership roles. Um, Melissa Hortman is the Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. Susan Kent was the leader of the de- Democrats in the Senate. Um, you know, and we had a number of women who led very powerful budgeting committees, the most powerful budgeting committees in both the House and Senate. So um, when we saw redistricting come down, a number of those women left, you know, either they were paired up with, in some cases, a male colleague and the male colleague decided to run again and they either lost in a um, endorsement battle um, or Mm -hmm. the the woman was the one who stepped down. Melissa Franzen. Melissa Franzen um, was the Senate uh, leader, um, the Senate DFL leader, and I'm sorry, Susan Kent was, and then it was um, uh, Melissa Lopez Franson, who took the job right before session started. Um, but yeah, now she is leaving the Senate um, because she was paired up with a male colleague and the male colleague was, was running again. I, I know a lot of the district, um, the new district lines were uh, in his old turf, um, but she was the leader of the caucus. So it was it was very interesting to see Julie Rosen paired up with the, uh, mm-hmm. and she is the chair of the Senate Finance Committee. Um, you know, there was, um, a handful of women who who just you know with numbers a number of years of experience are are leaving. I don't know yet how it will shake out. I mean, there's so many <laughs> as we talked about 201 races across the state. Um, I know some of the caucuses, House Republicans in particular, and um, you know Democrats in both chambers have said they've really tried to recruit women um, who fit their district, who um, were prominent in their communities. Um, you know, women tend to be really good messengers of issues around, you know, the economy and um, 
inflation and um, and obviously on the abortion issue as well uh, because it affects them um, you know more than it affects others so I, I do think we don't know yet how it will shake out I do will, I will find it interesting too if we have a new leadership um, in some of the caucuses you know how many of them are women right. um, because that's right. important right um, sort of turning back to statewide elections um, you mentioned that uh, the incumbent Secretary of State, Steve mm -hmm. Simon, is ahead in the polls, but yeah. it's still somewhere within the margin of error, and it's pretty narrow against challenger mm -hmm. Kim Crockett. Um, if you could talk a little bit about the dynamics of that race and how Secretary Simon's national profile on yeah. uh, sort of, uh, on elections as Secretary of State affects it. Yeah, that one is very interesting. Simon has been leading in the polls, but I do think that, um, you know, that one is it's really going to be a test of sort of how confident people feel in their elections, right? Because the concerns sparked by 2020 among the Republican base um, have not gone away, right? And, and that is really the issue that Kim Crockett is running on. That mm -hmm. is how she rose mm -hmm. to prominence. Um, you know, she has said in the past that she believed the um, 2020 election was lawless and rigged sort of terms around the, she, she says because policies were changed to accommodate the pandemic, that there's no way of knowing, you know, um, and, and and that those those changes helped Democrats, um, and and she doesn't believe the results were correct both nationally and in, and in Minnesota, and that that is what helped fuel her rise and helped her get the endorsement, and of course, win the primary, mm -hmm. and it has really sort of become what Simon is talking about. Right. Whereas in past elections, he's a second-term Democrat, so he's largely talked about voting you know policies he supports you know how to get minnesota back up because when he was actually elected the 2014 election minnesota dropped down to number six in total turnout so one of the big things he talked about in his first campaign is i want to get us back up to number one and he's done that um for the cycles that he's been in office but you know i think where he would have mostly talked about those kind of things he's much more focused on sort of supporting the system minnesota has in place and defending it um and you know if our poll is any indicator um minnesotans are very or quite confident in the state system i believe uh, nearly eight in ten respondents said they trust a minnesota's election so that could be something that is is helping him i would also say something that's probably helping him is millions and millions of dollars that are flowing into the state in that race which is so unusual We've never seen this before. It's kind of typically one of those sleepier down ballot races, mm -hmm. um, but there are Democratic groups in particular who are spending anywhere and upwards of, you know, and upwards of $5 million in the state um, through election day to, to attack Crockett, I would mm -hmm. say more, um, but also some ads focusing on defending Simon. Yeah, let's talk about outside money flowing to the state in general. Where are you? Where else are you seeing it in terms yeah. of statewide races, legislative races, and then this is an entree to talk about the second district as well. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about outside money is it's a lot of it is from. I mean, certainly we have groups that you know swoop in from in in the legislative battle. We have um, a Republican committee that focuses on turning legislative races is focusing on the Minnesota House. So they've spent over a million dollars um, attacking Democrats to try to flip the House. So they obviously see that as a fertile um, territory for flipping. Secretary of State's race has been huge. Um, you know, in Minnesota, we do, I, I, I would say, um, you know, Democrats outspend Republicans almost in every election. Um, there is a very, uh, 
solid group of donors and they have a very they're kind of a well-oiled machine of how they fundraise um elida messenger the ex-wife of former governor mark dayton um, a former rockefeller mm -hmm. uh, has donated a lot of money to a group called alliance for a better minnesota which is also working with the democratic governors association this cycle um to pump millions and millions and millions of dollars into that right race. so this is all outside independent spending that yes. can't be coordinated with the candidate but can be spent in unlimited amounts yes and yeah. they can coordinate outside groups can coordinate with each other right they just can't necessarily so that's what's been fascinating the democratic governors association instead of doing their own thing they've really come and jumped into this this kind of de democratic kind of fundraising and spending power we have in the state um, it's very fascinating how they do it a few groups raise all the money and they in the, a few groups spend all the money um and, it, and it's been very interesting to see how an outside group has decided to really kind of jump into that coordination to try to use money i guess the wisest and in the most effective way but it you know in minnesota sometimes gets a ton of national attention i mean two years ago we had um trump here a number mm -hmm. of times mm -hmm. we had you know minnesota just got kind of lavished with attention it usually didn't because trump had narrowly lost in 2016 so right. he was sort of obsessed with winning minnesota and he he came a lot he sent a lot of his um of his uh you know um his his sons his daughter his vice president a lot of people came to minnesota in that campaign um and biden came as well but this cycle it's been a little bit quieter both in outside money and in like people coming and visiting mm -hmm. although we did have the vice president um mm -hmm. kamala harris here just this weekend um, to do kind of an abortion related event and try to keep that conversation focused there in the final weeks we have a great question here from uh, a viewer about the dfl and the metro sure. and how important it is for the dfl to win the metro mm -hmm. to win statewide but the paradox of course is that most of the seats um, closest to the metro are pretty safe for democrats so the legislative activity and the uh house races the, the federal races aren't that active um okay. so how do you think that the dfl will do in the metro mm -hmm. um compared to say 2020 yeah. when that was uh critical for, for for statewide candidates um and what will the implications be yeah i mean they still really need to turn out people in the metro um it's particularly in the statewide races i mean walls is is doing you know if we look to our poll he's doing and and as well as ellison and all the other democrats are doing quite a bit better than their republican mm -hmm. opponents in the metro i know republicans are making some attempts to try to chip away at that support on the issue of crime um, but at least in our polls it looked as if um, democrats were really doing well, um, overwhelmingly well with voters in the metro, but they need them to turn out in high numbers, right? That is kind of, there, there's a lot of population crammed into the Twin Cities, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of them vote Democratic, and to make up for, you know, increasing um, divides in rural America, Democrats really need to turn out a lot of voters in that kind of power center. Um, I think they hope abortion will do that, um, but they do need the suburbs as well. They do need um, to, to perform strongly in the suburbs, both mm -hmm. for the legislative battle and um, the statewide ticket as well. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. Um, that's something that Ellison has been very good at mm -hmm. in the past. He was a congressman representing Minneapolis in the 5th District, um, the surrounding 5th District for many years, and he was a turnout that was kind of his thing he was the turnout machine for the rest of the party because his race was safe now he really needs to turn out that um those those voters for himself because he's struggling Such a bit a, outside so if you could say a little bit more about the yeah. ag's race between ellison and schultz and sort of what the key issues are and how in any similarities or differences in the way the candidates are campaigning oh yeah i mean <laughs> this one more than anything is really going to test 
the crime versus the abortion issue. Um, Jim Schultz, his Republican opponent, is, is almost exclusively talking about crime and how crime has risen. He's been very critical of Ellison for supporting the ballot initiative in Minneapolis to create a new Department of Public Safety. Um, and, and he's been picked up a number of endorsements from, um, I think, 37 now um, county sheriffs from around the country. I'm sorry, from around the state. Um, and so this has been his issue. He's really attacking Ellison for it, and he's trying to say that he will, um, you know, his his top issue if he wins is to try to tackle rising crime. Um, and Ellison is is talking a ton about abortion. Um, they've really been critical of Jim Schultz's past work um, for a nonprofit uh, that creates materials around abortion. Um, they've been critical of past comments he's made around sort of pharmaceutical companies and um, and abortion um, and pharmacists. You know, they've really they've really been hitting him hard on this issue and trying to paint him as, as extreme on it. Um, and the both sides are trying to paint the other as extreme on crime and extreme on abortion. So this, this may not be a fair question for you, yeah. but one questioner wants to know to one extent, uh, are the candidates not representing the issue of crime accurately? I mean, that's a, I think crime is rising, right? I mean, that is, that is a fact and people are concerned about it. Um, you know, it's interesting because crime is seen as a Twin Cities problem, this idea that it's spreading out into the suburbs, which I think there is some evidence to suggest, but I, you know, I think that, um, you know, some Democrats feel that um, candidates around the state are using crime in the metro um, and suggesting that there's crime everywhere when maybe it's not risen in all pockets of the mm -hmm. state. Um, you know, Ellison has said he's frustrated that uh, about the way the Minneapolis ballot initiative question has been framed as uh, defunding the police, mm -hmm. you know, it would have created a new dep Department of Public Safety. Um, but it's very easy to turn that into this, um, this slogan that we heard in the 2020 election as well, defund. Um, and, and that is something that is very easy for people to understand, even if it's not totally representative of what the ballot initiative would do. Um, but, you know, I think that what both sides are doing or, or what Republicans in particular are doing are tapping into very real fears that people have about safety um, and very real concerns that their community could see, you know, violent crime next. And um, that's ne not necessarily unfair that crime mm -hmm. is rising. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes when you get down to the specifics on some of these issues, um, like in any campaign, it's, it's simplified and sort of put onto a campaign ad or a piece of mail. Right, and to what extent does the murder of George Floyd, is that an issue in this race? Um, that's a great question. You know, I would certainly say the third precinct and um, the destruction that happened in Minneapolis has been something Republicans have pointed to a lot, right? Um, whereas Democrats are saying, you know, don't, you know, what about George Floyd? You know, what about um, the concerns over, um, you know, police who, use force um, and, and kill citizens in the line of, of duty. And I, you know, it, but it's interesting, um, two years ago, George Floyd was very much centered in, in a lot of conversations, um, you know, less so now because of rising crime. I think it's made it really difficult for Democrats to talk about police reform um, and, and changes in policing this cycle. It really just hasn't been a focus of conversation as much as sort of tackling rising crime. We've talked a lot about sort of partisan difference in the issues, um, but we have a questioner who wants to know about other demographic differences, in particular differences among young people and seniors mm -hmm. and other groups when it comes to 
crime is an issue? Oh, um, that's a good question. I'd have to check our cross tabs, but I mean, I do think that um, generally the breakdown is younger people tend to be more interested in um, the conversation around criminal justice reform um, and older voters tend to be more interested in sort of public safety as an issue, sort of what, what about my local police? Mm -hmm. What about my, mm -hmm. you know, sort of, um, you know, what are the numbers of officers in my local community? Um, but, you know, uh, one thing I'm really watching in general around is, is do young voters turn, turn out in this election? I think that is a big question mark. We tend to see a huge drop off in midterm elections from young voters. You know, some Democrats are saying they're very engaged around the issue of abortion, though, and that that could help, you know, increase turnout from mm -hmm. young voters. But, um, you know, if if they're not engaged, that spells trouble for sure for Democrats. Yeah. Um, sort of switching directions. This is a great question about state legislative candidates from a, a viewer. It seems that state legislative candidates are programmed by centralized House and Senate party caucus leaders mm -hmm. and seldom are campaigns developed independently by individual candidates. Then mm -hmm. I'm adding plus all the outside money that sure. can't be coordinated with yes. the candidates. Um, what does this mean for the winners being beholden to their leaders rather than constituents? Hmm. That's a great question. You know, I think you'll certainly see examples of, of I mean, recruitment happens all over the state, right? I, I, the caucus leaders are going out trying to find, you know, people who might be good, you know, messengers, oftentimes on the message they want to send. Um, but, you know, we saw a number of competitive primaries, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side, where people said, hey, I'm the better candidate for my community or on these issues that maybe you're not talking enough about um, and challenged and in some cases did win um, and, and are talking about those issues now on the campaign. Um, you know, I, I, that's always a big question. And I, I'm always fascinated because I cover the legislature, how many sort of mavericks we might have in the bunch, people who might break with their leadership and say what they wanna say and, and vote the way they wanna vote. I will say the trend in politics, you know, not even this election cycle, but in general is much more party line votes in general um, in the state legislature. So you're seeing, fewer breakaways. Um, I know there are some concerns that if you take sort of rural Democrats out of the picture, that there will be even fewer breakaways, that mm -hmm. the parties will really be divided between um, Democrats and sort of the metro and, and suburban areas and Republicans in rural areas, and that they'll kind of vote in big blocks on issues because they'll all be very aligned. Um, Right, and, and that's a trend, an increase in party line voting that we see at the national level, mm -hmm. we see in other state legislatures. Uh, and we also see party leaders at the national level and in state legislators with more agenda control yes. and more power. Um, but I'm also wondering, as you've viewed politics since 2010, have mm -hmm. you seen differences in the type of candidates that have emerged? Mm -hmm. You know, the candidates that need to get through the, the endorsement process or the mm -hmm. primary appeal to the base, um, are they, likely to come from different sectors, mm -hmm. uh, from sort of political political activism as opposed to a different type of career? Yeah, well, that's a great question. The, the joke when I came in was that all, <laughs> all legislators were attorneys um, or teachers because they could basically swing the job. You know, you, it's a part-time gig and you have to basically spend half of your year at the Capitol. Um, not a lot of jobs are super accommodating mm -hmm. for that or um, or you're independently wealthy. Um, I still think we see some of that. You know, I think that just the realities of being a citizen um, part time le legislature, it really just attracts certain people who can manage it. Um, you know, we've always seen uh, people who came up through um, activism running for office eventually. That's actually a pretty kind of 
common way for people. Like I door knocked for years in the X and X district and I never thought I could do it. And now I, here I am because, mm -hmm. you know, I had all these connections in politics and, and then I decided to run. Um, but, you know, I think we need people from all sorts of sectors and the biggest challenge is um, a lot of people, you know, people with big families, you know, people with, with tough, like busy jobs, um, busy lives tend to stay away from that place because they don't think they can manage both. Um, and I do think we lose representation from, you know, certain people who just couldn't possibly um, manage it. We are seeing a growing number of um, representatives and senators um, from communities of color at the Capitol, but it's still definitely well under, um, the, if you compared it to the population breakdown, it's under underrepresented, underrepresented in women. Um, so I think, you know, some of the challenges of the job are always going to make it really hard to have a really truly representative um, legislative branch. Yeah, and in some states with full-time legislatures where they work the whole year and are paid to work the whole time yeah. year, do better on that score. Yes, um, And in terms, and it also is helpful in developing expertise. Yes, yes. Uh, interesting. Um, one other factor is people could also see the increase in partisan polarization mm -hmm. and conflict between the two parties and think, you know, maybe this, this, this isn't, isn't for me, even though I want to make good public <laughs> policy, this might, this might not be um, for me. You might feel like you don't have a home in a place where if you talk to the other side, you might get chastised by people on Twitter. And mm -hmm. I would say um, social media and the rancor over, um, you know, in, in platforms like that, sort of this constant, like the political conversation doesn't just end at when you go home or when you're done with the debate for the day, you know, you have people tweeting at you or um, emailing you. I mean, email has been around for a while, but Twitter in particular is a, is a, an increasingly sort of hostile, nasty place that I think people say, I don't, I don't need this, you know? Right. That negative partisanship really kicks in. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned this sort of in several aspects related to the campaigns, but that real sort of breakdown in the urban-rural mm -hmm. coalition of the DFL. Yeah. Um, do you see any prospects for rebuilding in the future, a questioner wants to know? Or is Minnesota on track to mirror the trend nationally where rural districts, more sparsely populated districts, are just less likely to be represented by Democrats? Yeah, I would say... The last few election cycles, we've seen it the the national trend, right? Mm -hmm. um, I actually did a story about this earlier this year, and I drove out to visit a DFL candidate in western Minnesota, running for a new Senate district that kind of stretches from the western border all the way into Alexandria, Alexandria Minnesota, which is kind of in the central part of the state. So this huge, huge, sprawling district. Um, and she told me she had been asked to run about 50 times by local Democrats before she agreed to do it um, because it's it's daunting, right? I mean, the districts are huge. It's a ton of work. Um, and the numbers, when you look at, um, in particular, Trump versus, you know, ex-Democratic candidate numbers in the presidential races, it's, it's incredibly daunting. You know, a lot of these districts in rural Minnesota are 60, 70 Trump districts um, and how, you know, when a legislative candidate looks at that, they think, how can I overcome it? How can, um, you know, how can I get someone to vote for Trump and then down ballot vote for me? You know, I think the Iron Range will be the one to watch though this year. Watch what happens there. Do Democrats hold on, um, you know, and do, do Republicans maybe overplay their hand potentially on some issues? Um, you know, one person said that could be a possibility in terms of making gains, but, I think there's hope for them, but they, uh, the Democrats are going to have to spend a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of work um, rebuilding some of that trust in rural areas. 
And also they need to look at some of the pockets of the state that are diversifying, you know, in southern Minnesota, there are communities where um, there are growing um, populations of people of color and immigrants who are working in industries down there and might not always feel represented um, by the Republican in the legislature. So they are hoping they can try to um, maybe make some ground in some of those parts of the state. Rochester, though, um, not that that's rural Minnesota, that's a greater Minnesota regional center. Um, regional centers are, are often places where Democrats can have some say and some representation, but it's not the same as these rural districts that the questioner was asking about. Yeah, well, I think pointing out the diversity of rural districts as well is important, just as when we talk about suburban districts, you know, suburban uh, mm -hmm. can mean something very different. It can mean sort of affluent and white. Mm -hmm. It can mean, you know, predominantly people of color. It can mean many different things and people with different lived experiences. So this sort of notion of a suburban voter um, often sort of overlooks some, yes. some real distinctions within different suburbs. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have not really talked about Minnesota's second congressional district, a federal a federal race at this panel on state elections, but mm -hmm. it is one of the most competitive in the country, um, and certainly we're seeing the most ads focused yeah. on the second district in Minnesota yes. um, here here in the metro. So, what is your take on this rematch between uh, Congresswoman Angie Craig and Tyler Kistner, the challenger? Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch the. Cook political report, which we were talking about right before we started, has gone the full gamut of ratings for this race. You know, it was a toss up and then it was lean Democratic. Now it's lean, um, lean Republican. Um, so it, it's it's been fascinating to watch. And this one is really, again, another test of the climate. Um, and I think, you know, both sides are doing all they can and spending, you know, their tons of national money is coming into this race. So, you know, I think, and, and both candidates are really focusing on the issues that will motiv motivate their base. Angie Craig is attacking Tyler Kistner a lot on abortion. Mm -hmm. Tyler Kistner is talking a lot about crime and the economy. Mm -hmm. So you're really seeing this, um, like some other races, is, is, is really kind of a microcosm of the greater national debate. And I think the winner will be the winner of a lot of races right. on election night. Right. Um, but as partisan tide will really greatly affect. Yes, the but this is going to be a competitive congressional district in Minnesota for the next 10 years based on the lines. It's a very narrow. Um, it will probably swing with the political winds. Um, so if Angie Craig loses, I, I don't know if we've seen the last of her. Um, she lost her first race um, to Congressman Lewis and won a few years later. So, um, you know, we'll have to see what, what she does if she loses. And we'll have to see what Tyler Kistner does if he loses. He's, uh, this is his second run. Um, I don't know if he might have uh, three runs is, is tough. You know, Dan Feehan down in the first district mm -hmm. um, was a Democrat a lot of people liked in that race. He ran twice, didn't win twice and decided not to run again. Um, so we'll have to see. Right. Do you see the first or the eighth being competitive at all? Those are tougher for Democrats in this cycle and in this environment. It could be with the right candidate. A lot of people are excited about um, Jeff Ettinger, a CEO, former CEO of Hormel in Austin, um, cutting the right profile, but in a strong Republican year, you know, it's just going to be a challenge for a Democrat to cut through sort of on the issues that tend to favor Republicans, economy, crime, things like that. Uh, what have I missed in this conversation that's going on in Minnesota politics? Oh as my we gosh, wrap up? we've covered a lot of ground <laughs> actually, have. but it's, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating year. Every year is a little bit different. I was um, talking with someone about this the other day. It feels a little like 2010 in that, um, you know, you come in with a strong environment for Republicans. Um, a lot of activists are really sort of geared up over issues, you know, in 2010, it was the first two years of the Obama administration. Now it's, you know, COVID policies and a number of things. Um, but then you had Dobbs, 50 years of, of precedent just overturned overnight in the middle of it, of it all, right? Um, which 
created what has always been the case in Minnesota, which is just a fascinating stew of issues and probably a fascinating set of results. I bet we're going to see a mixed bag. You know, maybe one party will score more wins than the other, um, but they're not going to take it all. I was going to ask if you make predictions. I don't. <laughs> not after 2016. We should all stay away from that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you to Brianna Birchbach for a great conversation, yes. all your really valuable insight. We really appreciate it. And of course, reading you in the Star Tribune as well. So yeah. thank you thanks. so, so much. Thanks for having me. It was great. Um, and I want to close with a couple of upcoming events uh, before we give Brianna a round of applause. Um, on November 2nd, Krista Tippett, host of the On Being podcast, will have a conversation with author and journalist Amanda Ripley about her book, High Conflict, about why we get trapped in conflicts and how we can break the spiral. A video recording of this program will be available one to two days after uh, today's program, and it will also be available in podcast form on all your favorite podcast platforms and can be found by searching Dialogue Across Difference. We recommended subscribing to our podcast so you don't miss any of our event recordings. So let's give Brianna a hand and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.